We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. After World War II, Churchill said, The only thing that really frightened me during the war was the U-boat peril. I was even more anxious about this battle than I had been about the glorious air fight called the Battle of Britain. But that wasn't true. The U-boat activity, sinking shipping heading to England, was annoying and needed the defences bolstered to counter it. But it was nothing more than annoying. If you know anything about history, you'll probably be thinking that I'm joking or stupid, but maybe I'm right. Stay listening and give me the opportunity to surprise you. In World War I, the Germans launched the first ever large-scale submarine campaign against shipping to England and France across the Atlantic. The U-boats, the German word for submarine, that they used were quite modern by the standards of their day. The anti-submarine weapons were pretty basic and really not up to the job. At first, the Germans fought their submarine warfare following the international rules. The use of warships, which included submarines against merchant ships called Guerre de Corse, was governed by a series of rules designed to safeguard the lives of merchant seamen. Warships were allowed to stop, search and capture or sink enemy merchant ships, but only after they confirmed that the ship was carrying what was called contraband, a flexible term roughly meaning goods that could be used for military purposes for the benefit of their enemy. The warship had to make proper provision for the survival of the crew of the merchantmen. These rules were very useful to France and England, and they reduced the effectiveness of submarines as a weapon to the Germans. Submarines were really designed to take advantage of being invisible under the water to launch surprise attacks. The naval rules were for surface ships, because that's all there were when those rules were made up. When German submarines started to attack shipping, the British and French armed their merchant ships. This meant that they could damage U-boats so that they wouldn't be able to dive, which meant that the U-boats would be destroyed. After the Germans abandoned the rules for attacking merchant shipping and started what was called unrestricted submarine warfare, attacking without any warning, the Germans started to inflict such losses on the Allies that they were in danger of losing the war. In June 1917, the French and British started having their merchant vessels sail together in convoys escorted by warships. 
By the end of World War I, the Germans had sunk 4,837 Allied merchant ships, totalling over 11 million tonnes. In return, they lost 178 U-boats out of a total of 365 launched. So it was no surprise when in World War II, Admiral Dönitz wanted a massive building program to give Germany a fleet of submarines large enough to win the war. He also wanted some larger U-boats that could be used to supply the U-boats that were at sea. That way they could stay on station at sea a lot longer and not lose the time going to and from port. Leaving and entering port, though were choke points, was also the time when the U-boats were easiest to find and attack in the age of modern aircraft, the like of which hadn't been available in World War I. Dunitz reckoned that if each U-boat could sink three ships a month, the rate that the German U-boats sank shipping in World War I, then half of the British merchant fleet would be sunk within a year, vastly outstripping their ability to build replacements. England would be forced to surrender. In World War I, the German U-boats attacked submerged. In World War II, Dönitz came up with the idea that submarines should attack convoys on the surface at night. At the start of the war, the U-boat was virtually undetectable on the surface. They didn't sit very high above sea level, and they'd be in close proximity to their targets, increasing their chances of scoring a hit. Dunitz also wanted his U-boats to attack a convoy in large numbers. Up to 50 boats was his ideal. They would overwhelm the escorts and they would maximise the number of merchant ships that they sank. The key to doing this was controlling the U-boats by radio communications from the shore. Once one U-boat made a sighting of a convoy, it would report back to base and other U-boats would be called to assemble in a concentration area before launching the massed attack on a convoy at night. Alternatively, if the German intelligence got information about where a fleet was, they could send that information to the U-boats. That was the theory, and that was the big Weakness for U-boats, the use of radios. The use of radio by both sides was their strength, and if their enemy had broken their code, their weakness. If the cipher, the code used by one side or the other, was broken by the other side, then that side would know what the enemy was up to and how to counter what they were doing. So what happened in the Codebreakers' War? The German codebreakers, called B-Dienst, were very successful for a long time during the war. Their work was important because the British, Canadians and later the Americans all used the Royal Navy code to facilitate communications. If you broke that, then you had access to all signals of the Allies. The British had been very successful during World War I in breaking the German naval codes. They'd published stories about their code-breaking successes 
against the Germans after the war. They developed a certain arrogance about the strength of their own naval codes and a belief, without foundation, that the Germans didn't have the code-breaking skills that they did. Bidienst had in fact broken the naval code that had been used during World War I and the code that the British introduced to replace it, called Naval Cipher No. 2. The Germans had broken that new Naval Cipher No. 2 in September 1941. In December 1941, the British replaced their No. 2 code with the new Naval Cipher No. 3. In January 1942, the Germans broke this new code. This meant that the Germans were reading 80% of the Allied convoy radio traffic. Often they knew what the Allies were doing 20 to 30 hours in advance of convoys leaving for their voyages across the Atlantic. Given that the average World War II convoy moved at 7 to 8 knots, and a surfaced U-boat could move at double that speed, 16 knots, during a 24-hour period that a convoy would travel 290 kilometres, a U-boat would travel 580 kilometres. U-boats were easily able to intercept convoys in those circumstances. Once a wolf pack was assembled in front of a convoy, they would surface at night and maraud down the lanes of the convoy, If their attack had been very successful and the convoy formation had been badly broken up, a second attack could be launched. But actually, finding a convoy in the vast Atlantic Ocean was a daunting task. From the crow's nest on a U-boat sitting low in the water, the lookout could only see to a maximum of about 16 kilometres. That meant that a patrol line of 10 U-boats in a pack could only see about 354 kilometres at best. The Atlantic Ocean has a reputation for bad weather. Bad weather would successfully reduce the visual range of the U-boats. If the weather was severe enough, the U-boats were forced to dive and then they'd have zero visibility. What the U-boats were looking for was a convoy of about 50 ships. Such a convoy had a frontage of about 2,200 metres, and that was in the Atlantic Ocean, which was over 23 million square kilometres. At the height of the U-boat war, when the Germans were enjoying their greatest successes, 48 out of the 86 convoys that sailed weren't found at all. By the U-boats, and that was with intelligence gained from intercepting the Allied radio messages. In June 1943, the British replaced Naval Cipher Number no. Three with their newer Naval Cipher Number no. Five. In many ways, that wasn't as important. Donitz had suffered such heavy losses from the new anti-submarine warfare techniques and weapons that the Allies had developed that he had withdrawn all of the U-boat fleet from the Atlantic. The British themselves had had great successes with their own intelligence operations against the German naval Enigma machines. 
They had these successes not only from the work of Bletchley Park, but also from U-boats and other naval vessels that had been captured. This made it possible for the British to successfully read signals being sent to the U-boats. In the last months of February, May, June and July 1941, Bletchley Park was successfully intercepting and reading a lot of German signal traffic to the U-boats, some in real time. After August 1941, the Germans changed the way they coded material, which caused a delay in reading German signals of about 36 hours. That wasn't too bad. But after February 1942, the Germans started using a new Enigma key called Triton by the Germans and Shark by the British. Bletchley Park wasn't able to break that change to German codes until December 1942, a crucial period of the Battle of the Atlantic. But these intelligence advantages didn't, and never would, win battles. What would? Intelligence of what the enemy is up to has limited value. If, when you meet the enemy in battle, he's better trained, better armed, and has enough units to bring to the fight against you, you're still going to lose, even if you know everything about his plans. And that is really how the tide of the Battle of the Atlantic turned against the Germans. The Allies invested more into improving the technology they used against the Germans than the Germans did, until it didn't matter anymore, and as the Battle of the Atlantic went on, things became increasingly one-sided. One important development in the war to defeat the U-boats was what was called Huff-Duff, high-frequency direction finding. A U-boat sending a signal, no matter how brief, could be detected by the signal tracking method with a high degree of accuracy. It enabled hunter-killer groups made up of just anti-submarine warships, no merchant ships, they weren't convoys, whose sole purpose was to locate U-boats and to hunt them down and destroy them. At the same time that Huff-Duff equipment was being installed on warships, a new advanced type of radar became available, centimetric. It could detect a U-boat out to over 7,300 metres. Both sides used radar, and they also had devices to detect radar. The radar detection devices could locate a warship sending out a radar signal at much greater range than the radar could detect a vessel using radar. The difference with this new radar was that it was not able to be detected by such devices. The Germans were aware of the concept of such centimetric radar, but they hadn't yet developed their own were still for them was that they didn't even bother to figure out how to detect this new type of radar because they didn't believe that the British had it or could develop it, at least not just yet. This meant that U-boats, even U-boats surfaced in the middle of the convoy, were easily detected and then destroyed without getting any sort of warning that they'd been found. A new and more powerful explosive, Torpex, also came into use and was used in the new depth charges, making them considerably more lethal to U-boats. 
even more effective than depth charges were the new types of forward-firing anti-submarine weapons. When a warship used sonar to direct its attack on a submarine, the sonar would lose contact as it neared its targets. The U-boat would know that the warship's sonar had entered the blind spot and the U-boat skipper would make a hard turn to change the position of his boat so that the depth charges would hopefully miss. The new forward-firing anti-submarine weapons that were installed on warships were called Hedgehog and Squid. These were the main types. For them, there was no blind spot, no warning to the U-boat before they were fired. They were lethal. Another and even more high-tech weapon the Americans developed was a homing torpedo. For security reasons, it wasn't called a torpedo. That would have given the game away. It was called the Mark 24 Mine. It was nicknamed Wandering Annie. It was dropped from an aircraft. It would then pick up the sounds of the U-boat propellers and engines running and home in on it. It was successfully kept a secret during the war with devastating consequences for U-boats. The normal tactic for a U-boat attacked by an aircraft was to submerge and then make off at high speed from the position it was in when it dived to escape conventional depth charges which would be dropped onto the last known position. By making off at full speed, the U-boat gave the homing torpedo exactly what it needed to home in, loud engine noises. Sometimes it could take 13 minutes before the torpedo struck its target, a long wait before the attacking aircraft saw the result, if it did. The torpedo, unlike depth charges that damaged a U-boat from a distance, actually impacted on the submarine. When they hit, they ruptured the submarine's pressure hull, causing it to flood too quickly for the crew to usually have any hope of escape. The one or two U-boat crew who were lucky enough to have escaped gave chilling accounts of the crew being reduced to a screaming mass of humanity fighting to escape the submarine against the water rushing in, all comradeship lost, every man for himself with a blind and selfish panic. Even without this weapon, aircraft were increasingly used by the Allies with very long ranges, and aircraft could also accompany convoys and hunter-killer groups flying off small escort aircraft carriers to eliminate what had been the Black Pit, the area of the Atlantic Ocean that aircraft hadn't been able to reach into. Aircraft were the final nail in the iron coffins, as the U-boats used to be called. Looking at how the Battle of the Atlantic ran, it seems, overall, that Germany wasted resources on trying to win a battle that was going to be unwinnable. A cold clinical analysis of the Battle of the Atlantic gives what would have to be a dispiriting picture for the Germans. 40,000 men served in the U-boat service, mostly conscripts, as I said. 28,000 of them died. That was the worst loss rate for any service in World War II. If sunk underwater, the crew was completely lost. If anyone managed to escape, they usually faced the same end as the merchant seamen on ships that they sank. They would last as long as they had food, 
water or didn't die of dehydration that were unlikely to have been picked up. Dunnett's goal was to sink more ships than could be built so that England would eventually be starved into surrender. But Dunnett's hardly ever achieved that goal. Between September 1939, when the war started, and December 1941, the shipping available to the British increased substantially compared to the losses suffered at the hands of the Germans. Britain began the war with a merchant fleet of 3,000 ships of 17.5 million registered tonnes. When America entered the war, her merchant fleet added another 1,400 ships of 8.5 million gross tonnes. By the end of 1941, the British lost 1,124 ships, including neutrals sailing with British war cargoes, totalling 5.3 million gross tonnes. But in that same time, the British gained 483 ships when Germany occupied Norway, Greece and Holland. Another 137 ships were requisitioned as prizes from Germany and Italy. These totaled 4 million gross tonnes. British shipyards in that period had built about 2 million gross tonnes. So between the start of the war in 1939 and America coming into the war in December 1941, the British Merchant Navy had actually increased in size to 3,600 ships of 20.7 million gross tonnes. When America came into the war, the Germans were no longer in the race to ever win the U-boat battle in the Atlantic. American industrialist Henry Kaiser was a civil engineer who had built the Hoover Dam and other major engineering projects that Roosevelt initiated. He was asked during the war to review the time and motion techniques of American merchant shipbuilding to improve wartime production. He designed a merchant ship based on a British general purpose freighter and built shipyards on the east and west coasts of America to build them. Using a variety of techniques, including prefabrication, with delivery of those parts to the shipyard, something similar to what the Germans did later in the war with their U-boats, but not as successfully, his ship design, the Liberty Ship, was able to be built from scratch in four days. The usual average was 42 days, but four days really blows your socks off. 2,710 of these ships were built during the war in Kaiser shipyards. Dönitz's most successful time, what the U-boat crews called the happy time, just after America entered the war and refused to sail their coastal shipping in convoys, sank 1,006 ships in 1942, but only 31 in 1944. As I've said, the Atlantic Ocean was so vast that all of the U-boats that Dönitz was able to muster just disappeared into its vastness. Most convoys crossed the Atlantic without encountering a single U-boat. In the first five months of the war, 700 ships sailed to the British Isles. Only five of them were sunk. 
1940, 5,434 ships arrived in Britain. Only 133 of them had been sunk. In 1941, 12,057 ships reached Britain. Only 153 were lost. The total sinkings in convoys, even the weekly escorted convoys in the first three years of the war, totaled 291, 0.02% of the ships that sailed. Out of a total of 838 convoys with 35,449 ships sailed in 1943 to 1945, 325 ships were lost in total, a percentage loss of 0.009%. The Battle of the Atlantic was not ever likely going to be won by the Germans. The measures taken by the British and Americans in arming their ships and aircraft with ever-improving weapons and technology compared to what little improvements the Germans were able to achieve just made that outcome more certain. Dönitz never even got close to winning this one. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in the danger zone. If you're feeling lucky, I hope you'll try your luck in surviving my next danger zone program.